Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Ben Chappell is a PhD student in London. He is doing a PhD under the Zoological Society um, of London. And he's doing a PhD on the effects of climate change and tourism, specifically on wild dogs in Kenya. Uh, we got introduced uh, via email by a friend of mine who's an ecotourism guide in Kenya, uh, Zarek Cocker. And uh, I just. I wanted to have this conversation because these, these, you know, I was a PhD student once and as a PhD student, you're just fascinated about the, the, the world and how it works and the conservation elements. And, and Ben Chappell certainly is one of those individuals. He's a non-hunter, does not come from a hunting background. Actually, I as, wouldn't describe him as an anti-hunter, doesn't quite enjoy, could classify it as despising. Uh, the idea of hunting for fun. So the perfect guy to have an amazing conversation about the reality of conservation work in Africa and other places around the world and how hunting fits into it. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. You know, it's funny that this, um, I love how conversations come to be, right, Ben? 
Mm-hmm. When did you go on safari with Zarek? So I, I, I spent a week with Zarek at the beginning of October uh, last year in Kenya. Um, I'd been corresponding with him for the whole, pretty much the whole year running up to that. I spent last year living in Kenya doing um, field work for my, for my PhD. Um, Sweet. Yeah, which was very cool. Um, Zarek, Tough life, huh? That's yeah. the beauty of a PhD, right? <laughs> no, I know. It's a bit harder now I'm stuck back in North London, sadly. Uh, not, not quite so inspiring on a day-to-day basis. But and also has- probably sitting in front of a computer, analyzing data, creating spreadsheet after spreadsheet after spreadsheet, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a, a different appeal, not, not quite as good as being able to you know, roll off after work every evening and drink a beer watching elephants or something like that. But um, yeah, no, so Zarek, I mean, Zarek is obviously a, a very well-known figure in, in the kind of Kenyan wildlife community. So I was always very keen to, to chat to him and, and meet him. And it was great to get get an opportunity to spend some time with him just before I came back to the UK, actually. So grand finale to my time in Kenya. Um, it was a, a great way to end. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Ben Chappell, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Um, you came to us via an email introduction by Zara Cocker. Um, he's a big, a long-time listener of the Blood Origins podcast. I have attempted in the last... 48 hours to bring him onto the podcast two or three times because Kenya is just popping right now in the human wildlife conflict news around the world. And he still is refusing <laughs> to come <laughs> on. He just doesn't feel like his excuse to me, and Zara's going to be listening to this, so he's going to be laughing. His excuse is he doesn't like to hear the sound of his own voice. <laughs> so my response to him is like, you don't have to listen to your own podcast. Number I one. think Zarek's got to come on, surely. He'd be such come a good guest. Come on. Yeah. He'd be so good. He has great opinions. He's a wildlife guide in Kenya, you know, um, sort of a bastion of wildlife conservation, but also sort of a, a poster child that the hunting community has used, is using um, for what happens when a value gets removed from, from the wildlife itself. Um, let me ask this, Ben, um, before I let you, actually, no, let me do this. Why don't you just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do right now, what, what brought you to spending a whole year in Kenya? Yeah, great. So, yeah, so I'm, my name is Ben Chappell. I'm, I'm currently a PhD researcher at the Zoological Society of London and Imperial College London. Um, so my PhD, broadly speaking, it's looking at the kind of impacts of climate change um, and tourism on wildlife conservation and the communities that live alongside wildlife in, in Kenya. Kenya is where I'm focusing on. So I guess the kind of key questions I'm looking at are how can we better um, make sure that the interests of wildlife conservation are aligned with the interests of communities? Because I think historically, a lot of conservation that's happened, particularly in Africa, and Kenya is no exception, has, has happened sort of counter to the interests of the people who are most affected yeah. by wildlife presence, yeah. um, and so uh, a key part of what I'm of how I'm looking at that is through the lens of tourism, because of course you know, tourism is one of the ways that economic benefits can can be derived from wildlife presence. Um, but I'm looking through the lens of climate change as well, because of course, especially in um, the world we live in today, people are thinking more about the impact of their travel, and so there's this kind of dilemma when it comes to to wildlife travel, as as a lot of people see it which is that if you're flying halfway around the world to look at wildlife in Africa, 
you are contributing to climate change. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that some of these um, some of these species, particularly African wild dog, which is a, a species that I, I care enormous about, about, and that part of my research is focused around, there's evidence that they might be quite affected by climate change. And yet, I think the evidence is fairly overwhelming that without visitors to these countries, a huge proportion of the funding that, that goes towards conservation projects, um, and I don't, I'm sure we'll get into this a bit, I would absolutely include um, hunting in that, um, you know, that would dry up. And I think that there's, there's almost no doubt that, you know, as we saw with COVID, if tourists stop visiting Africa tomorrow, the short-term impacts would be pretty devastating for the conservation of wildlife. Um, so I guess part of what my project is trying to look at is how do you work out what that balance is, what sorts of travel should we be encouraging for people to make sure that they can um, understand that if they are going to go, that they're doing it in the, most, the way that's most likely to be positively impactful yeah, both for wildlife and for and for people. It's funny you mentioned what you just mentioned in terms of, um, you know, I'll I'll you'll never hear me say hunting is the is the solution. Hunting is not the panacea that is the sort of again the savior for wildlife conservation. It's an incredibly valuable tool. Uh, it may be your only tool in certain parts of Africa. It may not be a viable tool in, any, in other parts of Africa. Um, but there's this whole debate of like, you know, how important is it? And you nailed it on the head in that regardless of whether it's tourism, hunting, there's, a, there's inherently some, there's money and economics tied to people and the value that the wildlife brings for people to go and see the wildlife to protect it. If you take that away, whether it's an ecotourist thinking about climate change, I'm not going to go there, or a hunter going, mm, too much pressure, too many hurdles to get over, I'm not doing it anymore. Both is bad news for conservation. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I do completely agree. Um, I, I was listening back to your um, most recent conversation with Amy Dickman, and I think my perspective would be broadly exactly the same as, as hers, which is that, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not a hunter myself. Um, I've, I've been on trips where I've seen people hunting and I can, I'm not the sort of person who completely fails to understand the appeal. It's not something I can probably ever see myself doing. But I think in a pragmatic world, you have to take every contribution to conservation you can mm -hmm. get. And as you say, the reality is, especially in some of these parts of, of Africa where you know, perhaps wildlife densities are nowhere near or aren't high enough or the habitat isn't open enough perhaps for traditional photographic tourism to be appealing. Um, yeah, I think those, those do, are never, nevertheless areas that hunters do want to mm -hmm. go to. And so, I, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think if I could design the world, you know, in a sort of magic, with a magic wand, I would probably idealistically say I'd rather people didn't go and kill things for fun um, but I recognize that's not the world that we live in. And so as someone who's interested in the consequences of the decisions we make, particularly how those relate to wildlife populations and the amount of land that's devoted to conservation, I, I, I actually would say that I think that hunting appears to be a, an invaluable con contributor to that. I just shared with you an article that came out today by Rachel Neuer, New York Times journalist. It's a monstrous article. She's been working on it for four years. 
She went to Tanzania, Botswana, Namibia. Anyway, it's a long article. I just sent it to you. Um, and the title of the article is very interesting. The title of the article is uh, Africa's Conservation Conundrum. The trophy hunting industry in Africa is dying, and that should concern us all. What if anything replaces it will prove critical for the protection of contents, wildlife, and wild places? And to me, you, you almost nailed it on the head. And I'd like your opinion, because you're not a hunter. You've, you've, you just mentioned that. Um, when, when I heard you say, you know, I, I couldn't do it because I just, you know, I don't see why someone would kill for fun. That's the, that's the paradigm that we have to, it's, it's the thing that is the thorn that's in our side. I'm not going to say that people don't do it for the thrill of the, again, there may be some people who say, yes, I enjoy the thrill of the kill. Okay. I just don't, to me, like I'll put myself in the thing. I don't find it fun to kill something. But it's the thing that I'm doing to be there. Otherwise, I'd be hiking. Okay, so somebody says I'm going hunting. The, the idea in that, in that statement is that you are in the, there is an intent to your action, which is when you find the thing that you are looking for, you're going to kill it. And I think things get, they, it's very easy for those things to be overlaid to say, well, you, you, do you enjoy hunting? The answer is yes. Is hunting fun? Yes. But there's a difference. I didn't, I was very purposeful in my language there, right? I didn't say, is killing fun? You know, it's, it's the adventure, it's the, it's the place, it's the people, it's the hardships, it's the 14 hours slogging through the bush like you know, and finding that one animal and you're going, oh man, that's amazing, and you actually didn't take the shot. Or, so it's, it's, I don't know, man, it's the thing that I struggle with daily, and you nailed it on the head right away, it's like there's this perception, and I don't know if we'll ever get over it, Ben. I don't, mm. think, I don't know if we ever, we ever will. No, well, I, I um, well, a couple of things. There's so much, so much that's going through my head when I'm listening to that. You know, one thing is I was listening to some of your earlier episodes where people are talking about, you know, this, the fact that we have evolved to be hunters. It's a part of who we are as humans. And I think I can absolutely understand that. And I can't remember who it was, but someone made the point that, you know, even if you are absolutely as anti-hunting as anyone could possibly be you don't have to go back through very many generations before we find you know ancestors who are who were involved in hunting so i can see that that point of view but today's day and age you don't need it right yeah, that's the sure. key it's like mm -hmm. but there's the paradox again mm -hmm. you don't need to hunt like you your ancestor did to survive you can go to the grocery store yeah yeah but is that is that right yeah, well, one one thing I would I would say is that so uh, at least until I went to Kenya, I was vegetarian, other than the fact that I would eat wild game. So I what uh, you were <laughs> non-hunter vegetarian that only ate wild game. If I was eating meat, I'd, eat, I'd only eat wild game. Yeah, dude, um, listen to me. There's a lady <laughs> called Candace Sable in Maine, 
who was exactly like you. She's amazing. She's a like, she's a, she couches herself. She was like episode four in the Blood Origins. She couches herself. She's in my introduction because she couches herself as a feminist that works for a battered woman's shelter nonprofit that has only eaten wild game meat for the last 25 years. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I, the way I've always sort of would have seen that is that you know my main interest is sort of ecological, right? So the thing I care most about is trying to take actions that will contribute to healthy, thriving ecosystems that that everyone can enjoy. And if we're talking about you know game meat from the UK and venison, um, I was I listened to a couple of your episodes on the sort of deer hunting subject in the UK. There are lots of deer here. They do need to be culled or managed to, to a certain extent. And if you're, by buying that meat, you're contributing to that endeavor that I think does have good outcomes for conservation. Um, so I, yeah, that would be my primary interest is trying to take whatever action I think would help conservation more than, more than anything else. Um, so you changed from being a vegetarian after living in Kenya for a year? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, so I realized quite quickly being out there that I was going to struggle to get the sort of diet that I why wanted. Why do you think that, you, again, why do you think you struggled? Well, I mean, so I was living at a research center where they were cooking for us every day, um, which is a very, you know, very privileged position to be in. Um, but some days I would have had to just eat ugali and spinach, um, and that would have been all I would have had. And maybe if I'd been a little bit more um, resolved in my mind to stick to it, then I could have got by on that. But it would have been such a... I, I wouldn't have been very happy about it. I wouldn't have felt like I was getting a nutritionally balanced diet, particularly. You're, you're um, a thoughtful individual. How about, <laughs> this, how about this hypothesis? That vegetarianism and veganism is a first world construct. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think, you know, I, I think the way I would always have viewed it is that, you know, there are certain forms of you know, agricultural meat production that are, you know, it is beyond dispute. They are bad for the planet, right? I, as someone who live in a very rich country, I'm, you know, relatively well off. And I can afford to make decisions with my diet that mean I can avoid choosing those things. Um, yeah, I completely recognize that there are people all around the world, especially in less well-off countries, for whom that simply isn't an option. And I would never, ever seek to impose vegetarian or veganism or indeed any kind of, any kind of way of life on people whose, you know, whose situation I don't, I don't really understand and who don't have that kind of breadth of options. Um, for me, it would, it's more just if I can make that decision that on balance is likely to, to re reduce the environmental impact of what I'm doing, then I will try and I would like to think I would try and do that. And again, you know, that doesn't mean absolutely for me never meant being ideologically opposed to the idea of killing or eating animals. Mm -hmm. It's just the circumstances in which those animals are, are mm -hmm. killed and eaten that I think I would have had mm -hmm. a problem with. Um, so what the wild game thing, I, as I said, absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. And I think something that often should be positively encouraged. Um, that, that's always been, my, always been my view. When, when you were spending that, that year in Kenya, 
give people sort of an understanding because again context here kenya banned hunting in 1977 or was it 74 i think it i can't i think it is 77 i think 77 um very well known you know set of data that shows that kenya has lost 70 percent 80 percent of its wildlife i think recently i saw that the elephant population has now sort of slowly started to rebound. That thing went from 12,000 to 30,000. Phenomenal wildlife, don't get me wrong, phenomenal wildlife in the national parks of Kenya that are very well protected by the Kenyan Wildlife Service, but very little wildlife outside of the boundaries of the national parks. And one of the you know, justifications to that is, not, not that it, you, it's justified, but is that the value of wildlife was no longer there. Ecotourism is still a stronghold in Kenya, but the ecotourism is centered around the national parks and the, the concessions around the national parks. And so the value chain flipped. It flipped to agriculture, livestock, uh, row crop agriculture, avocado farms. You know, as Kenya became more of a, a, a sort of the urban centers demanded more Western-type foods the country has migrated to meet those demands. Is that what you saw, Ben? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly you're right that there's very little. So the area where I was based is Laikibia. So it's this part of central northern Kenya, which is dominated by private landowning. So it's, it's a lot of private landowners and then also quite a lot of community lands that are you know, owned by um, but ma- local Maasai, Maasai people. Okay. Uh, and outside of those, so the private lands, a lot of those are run for conservation and have a huge amount of wildlife. Um, the community lands, by and large, have very little wildlife. And I think mm-hmm. one of the, the key problems, as you describe it, in, in Kenyan conservation is trying to work out how, how you can spread the benefits of, of wildlife presence to communities in particular. You know, out of these these national parks that yeah generate millions and millions of dollars in revenue every year, by and by and large, you know that money is not shared with the people even who live right on the borders of those places. Ben, uh, why is that the case? And and maybe you can give a little bit more insight here. I've, I'm fascinated, right? Okay. Again, I live this world. I breathe this world every single day. And if you said, Robbie, lay out the thorns that you get smashed with like every single day. Sin- like probably near the top is the idea that hunting doesn't benefit people. They run the 3% model that came out of that one paper way back in the day that took out of context the actual contributions of hunting to communities. And there's one line in that table that says 3%. Mm-hmm. How much is going back to communities from ecotourism? Yeah, I mean, often very, very little. Um, and, and historically, I think the reason why that's been the case has simply been because the people running ecotourism have been able to get away with it, right? So um, especially if you're talking about these government-run blocks of land, um, yeah, they're generating huge revenues, but the people who are benefiting are the national government um, and then the people who actually own and operate the, the tourism operations. And those don't tend to be people from the local area for mm-hmm. all, all sorts of reasons relating to expertise and capital and, and all sorts of things like that. They tend to be, even if they are from the country itself, that they tend to be relatively wealthy individuals from Nairobi or you know, 
you know, one of the major urban centers. And I think the reason why local communities or a big part of it haven't been able to get access to those benefits is because they've, they've been politically disenfranchised to a pretty yeah. considerable extent yeah. um, and haven't had the means of taking control of their own um, land that's often been denied to them first by kind of colonial regimes and then you know, latterly by by post-independence governments um they, they haven't been able to to access those kind of revenues and so i you know, my view would be that any step in kenya or anywhere else that increased the probability that communities could um, benefit from wildlife presence on their land in as many ways as possible i'd, I'd be enormously in favor of that and again, I'm not going to speak. I, I would. I don't know the kind of counterfactual of what sure, would have sure. happened if if Kenya hadn't banned hunting. Sure. Um, but certainly, my impression from other parts in Africa is that with a different kind of model of wildlife ownership, if you look at obviously you'll know this much better than I will about Southern Africa. But it seems that in South Africa, when people are allowed to own the wildlife on their land, um, that's had huge benefits for oh, yeah. for wildlife conservation. I think beyond dispute for anyone other than yeah people who are just anti-hunting no right by 100%, definition 100 percent. so i would the, think, uh, yeah no uh, no go ahead no so i would i would just say that i i could i could easily imagine a world in which um you know well-regulated hunting um could improve the situation on these community lands that up until this point have experienced almost no benefits from from wildlife presence and, and if you're talking about traditional ecotourism, which is the area of research that, that I've been in, mostly involved with in Kenya, I think a lot of these communities have been, they've been sold an idea that if they, if they develop tourism on their lands, you know, photographic tourism, that all of these benefits will start flooding in. And I think the problem is that that's, that's very unlikely to be true in most places because most places are not adjacent to the Masai Mara. They're not adjacent mm -hmm. to these big national mm -hmm. parks where there's this reservoir of wildlife you know by and large the wildlife densities in these places are very low um they mm -hmm. might be very beautiful landscapes and you know, there might be other forms of wildlife tourism that could be sustainable and um could work well but i my concern is that that photographic tourism like, like you were saying photographic tourism itself is not a panacea you know you were saying hunting is not a panacea either um there are different places in africa and different places in the world where different approaches are going to be necessary and i think any any conservation strategy that ties itself to one of them above above the others is likely to likely to fail on a on a global scale or on a kind of regional scale when you were in kenya uh doing your research did you find that obviously you're focusing on wild dogs wild dogs are very well known for their their ranging um abilities to move through through the landscapes um you know, large habitats, connected habitats is what we need for wild dog conservation in Africa. What, what did you see in terms of that interaction of wild dogs with the community? Are you, are you, are you, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> are you looking forward? Or do you think there's a bright future there for what you saw? I, I think. Uh, it's a hard question, especially because wild dogs are continuing to decline, right? So the the overall picture is is not all that optimistic. I think you know, if there's a wild dogs, I think are so when I'm talking to these when I was talking to these communities about the species that cause them the most 
problems. It's uh, elephants come out top almost every time. Uh, hy hyenas come out high. Leopards come out high. Lions, when they're present, uh, can be a huge problem. Wild dogs aren't so difficult to live alongside, right? They yeah. are. Yeah, they're, they're not intimidating. They're not like life-threatening type animals. No, not at all. And they, you know, they hunt in quite specific times of days, and they usually have quite predictable routes that they take through, certainly this, through these community lands. So actually, it's not that difficult to put in place systems for coexisting with wild dogs. Uh, when they do predate livestock, they often kill, they, they can kill dozens of goats in a single, in a single attack. Um, so for individual farmers, they, they can be devastating. But it's pretty rare that they do hunt livestock um, because if there's some wild prey present, they generally prefer to hunt those. And so I think, yeah, with the right, right advice given to communities and the right, the right kind of approaches put in place, um, wild dogs are a species that's, that's easier to coexist with than, than a lot of others. It's funny, you mentioned two things. Um, number one, Lake Kipia, the, word, <laughs> the, the area that you did. If there was one podcast I would recommend you go listen to with mine, it was like number six or number seven. It was a girl out of Kenya. Her name was Mimo Some. And uh, she slid into our DMs and she said, I do not understand the perspective of your Instagram page. I was like, hmm, pretty, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, we champion hunting. She's like, well, I don't think hunting does anything. And I said, well, I can't really like answer your question legitimately through the Instagram DM. Why don't you come on a podcast with me? And you can ask me any question you, po you could possibly want. And lo and behold, she showed up. And a uh, brilliant lady, super intelligent, uh, very young. I think she was 18 years old at the time when we podcasted. She ran a, um, a youth charity, wildlife environment charity out of Nairobi. And it was eye-opening in terms of like what she thought hunting was. And she, I think she, I remember distinctly saying she's from the Lake Kipia region. And she mentioned elephants and whatnot. Secondly, wild dogs. Um, we work with uh, several operators all throughout Africa. One being a couple of operators in Nyasa, which is the northern Mozambique uh, wilderness area. It's right on the southern border of Tanzania. The Legenda River is the border. And um, interestingly enough, one of the concessions there has currently a wild dog pack of 30. Yeah. And they are doing amazingly. And the hunting outfitters are like, it's brilliant. People get to see them. We see them all the time. But on the other hand, they're like, man, they are snapping up lots of Impala, lots of Kudu. Lot. They are just, you know, machine. Because mm -hmm. they've got like, what are they? They're like 80% successful, aren't they, Ben? That's, that's what, yeah, that's the often sort of quoted statistic. Um, that's, that's based on um, yeah, chases of large prey in relatively open habitat. So that'll vary depending on what they're hunting and where. Um, but yeah, they're incredibly, incredibly good at catching stuff. Um, yeah, most of the time things don't get away if they, if they really pin themselves on them. Jeez, man. Mm. So they, uh, it's just that these guys are, it's almost proof, man. We've used it as a, as a video, just proof of, you know, protect the habitat and these kinds of like wildlife can absolutely flourish, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I guess with the with wild dogs, if you're talking about somewhere like South Africa, where you know, the impala and everything are privately owned, you know, that, that presents an interesting problem for things like wild dogs, which do consume so much prey, because I think that's a pretty strong disincentive for landowners to have 100% have wild dogs on their property. And of course, you know there are wild dogs in Kruger, um, and that's sort of sustaining sustainable population on its in, on its own. But otherwise, it's this managed metapopulation where private reserves have to consent to having wild dogs brought specifically to their reserve. Yeah, so yeah. I guess if if it's primarily a hunting reserve, and you know it's a choice between having something that'll eat all your impala or not, then it's that is pretty a pretty good reason not to not to take the risk. Well, there's the value, right? There's the value. Mm-hmm. Is the value there in the wild dogs being present so people can mm-hmm. see them from an ecotourism photographic perspective? Or is the prey more valuable to you from a hunting perspective? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben, um, tell me a little bit about your, your, um, your sort of upbringing in, in, in England. Obviously, not raised a hunter. Um, how were you raised? So I, I grew up in Dorset, uh, which is a rural part of southwest England. Um, yeah, so surrounded by the countryside, surrounded by you know, wildlife and beautiful places. Um, although I haven't ever sort of hunted or shot um, myself, I do come from a family that has always been quite keen on that sort of thing. Not, not my father himself, but my grandfather, several of my uncles, other relatives, um, have always been involved in um, mostly fe- sort of pheasant and grouse shooting. So I guess when I was growing up, it was always a, not a strong pressure necessarily because I was sort of left to follow my own interests, but it was always sort of in the background, you know, it would be really nice, Ben, if you did want to do this. Um, mm. I, do, I do technically um, own a shotgun, which I've never used. <laughs> my, my grandfather was very keen for me to start shooting. Um, and and so kind of gave me one at one point. Um, just that he he stopped when he got too old. So it wasn't it wasn't a kind of a great gift that I spurned. But it was uh, um, yeah, it was always something they would have liked me to have done. But it was never. I think none of my friends really did it. Um, it was not something that was part of my sort of social life when I was growing up. Mm. Um, if it had been, I, I might have turned out differently. Um, but as it was, I never really saw the need to get involved in it. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. I've, you know, I've been exposed to it quite a bit. I've been on shoots without having taken part in the shooting myself. Um, so I, you know, I, I, and, and yet you know, the other side of me is that I've done a lot of things involved in, in wildlife conservation and wildlife viewing. So I, I feel I have an interesting kind of um, set of experiences as it relates to specific, especially that side of of hunting or shooting in the UK, mm-hmm. um, yeah, without ever having having actively taken part in it myself. You, you never felt like you wanted to take that next step, i.e. you were a vegetarian that ate only wild game meat. That next step of is pretty obvious, like, I'm going to go get my own wild game. Sure. So, I mean, I think what I would say is that, so I was never doing, it was never deer stalking, never deer hunting, that kind of thing. I think what I have, I have a bit of a problem with the way that the sort of driven bird shooting mm. stuff takes place in the UK, mm. just, especially if you're talking about just the class system of it. The class system is is part of it, um, and that's that's in, I think that is enormously problematic. Um, but actually, what I was what I was going to say was that um, 
you know, with pheasants at least, you know, they are not a native species. They're not actually even wild, really. I mean, as you'll know, tens of millions of them are released into the countryside every year in order to be shot. Um, you know, whatever else that that's you can't argue that you are by killing and eating them that you are eating sort of sustainable wild wild game because mm -hmm. they've they've literally been released you know sometimes just a few weeks before um for the purposes of being shot now i'm not saying there aren't some positive consequences for the landscape of of you know what happens when you have pheasant shooting in an area um there's evidence that you know, farmers are much more likely to retain hedgerows and woodland and rough habitats and all sorts of things that pheasants like. So that's, that's fine. But I think in response to your specific question about taking that step of, of going out and shooting things to eat myself, I, I wouldn't have classed really the sort of the pheasant side of thing and the red-legged partridge, which is also another non-native species that's released in huge numbers. And I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in the, the wild game category, really, from my point of view. Um, I, I wouldn't see that it has those same ecological benefits that perhaps you know wild venison might have, where um, there or, is or a grouse, right? Or a grouse. Um, I think the grouse thing is interesting too because you know these driven grouse moors are almost, as far as I see, they're, it's almost like intensive farming of grouse rather than hunting of wild birds in a sort of natural state. Um, mm -hmm. You know the densities that they can achieve through very intensive management of these moors is sometimes hundreds of times higher than you would expect to see in a habitat that was relatively unmanaged, right? And that Yeah, but let's the you know, let's take the African example and stick it on the mm -hmm. Scottish Moors, right? Mm -hmm. Would the Scottish Moors be the Scottish Moors today if there wasn't a value to manage them at a high density for grass? They would certainly be very different to what they are now. Um, that's that's beyond dispute. Um, I think the yeah, this is where I think it gets into slightly difficult territory because there. Well, are let's explore it. No, no, absolutely. I, you know, <laughs> it's it's really it's really cool. I've su such an interesting conversation. I think we have. You know, I think in the UK we're at a very exciting moment potentially where we are. A lot of people are re-examining our relationship to the landscape, and I think that could go in some very interesting directions. I, I do think it's very easy for people like me to say. Oh, if only if they weren't doing driven grouse shooting, therefore there would be beautiful expanses of native pine forest and you know, and a variety of habitats that would benefit benefit biodiversity in general. I think that that again, if I could wave a magic wand and hmm. turn you know, large swathes of the Scottish Highlands into that, what I would see as a much more dynamic landscape, then I would love to do it. But I think hmm. you're right. The reality is that. We don't know what would what what might take take its place um, across a lot of that landscape. Um, yeah, I I do think that that um, you know, these these moors are valuable in and of themselves for a lot of wildlife, but it tends to be the sorts of wildlife that likes exactly the same things as grouse do. And I guess my only point would be that. I think uh, it would be a more dynamic and interesting highland world if, yes, there were spaces for grouse, but also areas of the highlands where you could allow more natural regeneration of woodland, um, mm -hmm. which would benefit a whole host of other species that at present do very badly on, on grouse moors. No, I'm with you.
I'm with you, man. I, you know, I think that's the whole idea. Um, I think the idea of biodiversity being a champion, um, or being something we champion as hunters, as non-hunters and whatnot, I think that's a, that's a flag we can all run towards. Okay. Like for instance, wolves, wolves. I put wolves, feral horses, and cats all in the same like <laughs> boat. Like they're all the most controversial, most emotive, wild wildlife. And I say wildlife in quotations. Wolves are wildlife. Feral cats and and horses, I would not consider wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're emotive. They're emotional. Um, they play different roles in the landscape. Wolves very much. In the hunting community, there's people like myself who says, love wolves, want them on the landscape. I think it's pretty darn cool to hunt amongst wolves. But just like any other wildlife, I believe they need to be managed. And um, because of the anthropomorphic fingerprint that we have on the landscape, rip large. Feral horses, mm, you know, (laughs) probably don't belong in the landscape or in very, very, very few numbers. (laughs) And right now, the feral horse problem in america specifically in nevada is out of control sure i think their population carrying capacity number is like twenty-seven thousand. uh no sorry twenty-seven thousand across the entire range not just nevada and they're at like eighty-eight thousand. Uh-huh. same thing in australia uh-huh. uh, kosciuszko national park the brumbies you know massively exceeding carrying capacities right now and then feral uh-huh. cats just causing massive biodiversity issues around the world. Yeah. Um, I say that all to say that we should champion biodiversity. We should champion it in all facets um, from what we do for conservation, what we do for management. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point earlier, we should use every single tool in the toolbox that we have at our disposal sure. to be able to achieve that. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And I could... You know, that, that sort of future of a much more dynamic Highlands that I would like to imagine. I think it would be great if that included, you know, hunting of the sort that I think is much more prevalent in other parts of the world. You know, I just think that you know, maybe with the exception of deer, of deer stalking in the UK, you know, a lot of the field sports that take place here, yeah, as you say earlier, they're also, they're very tied up with class, but they are also quite artificial. You're not, it's not really hunting wildlife, and I don't really see them as contributing to a dynamic, a dynamic landscape. Um, but if, you know, a future in which that were the case, I would be a huge supporter of that. I just, so one, one question I had for you, because I was on your website. Oh, no, this is my podcast. Sorry, no, you're no, not no. allowed to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. I take it back. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> so I was, as interesting, so you're talking about the feral horses. Yeah. And obviously a non-native herbivore that's having an impact on the landscape. I, I did. I was on your website this morning, and I saw your film about the. Or I saw your introductory clip about your your tar um, film, and and I'd be interested just to hear what you think the difference is there, because you know, New Zealand, you know, if anything, is somewhere where you know, there shouldn't be any terrestrial mammals whatsoever. If you're talking about ecological 100%. impact, you know, none of the plants are adapted to dealing with their their impacts. Ooh, but are they? Ooh, well, where are they okay, ecologically? Well, interesting point. Sure, sure. Well, I'd be interested to hear what you what you think about that. So, you know, you're right. New Zealand is there's only one native mammal to New Zealand, including excluding humans. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a bat. Yeah. Um, and so New Zealand and Australia are, are sort of couched in the same category in that, yes, they've, they're full of introduced non-native species that at this stage of the game, the stage of life, of climate, of the world, you're not going to eradicate. Okay? You're not going to eradicate for several reasons. One, number one, first and foremost, it's almost logistically impossible to do it. Number two, probably more importantly, those, those, those animals have value. They are assets, and they need to be looked at as assets. So tar, let's talk about tar. When you think about impacts of animals on the landscape, you've got to consider you know, what kind of impacts they are and the density of the, those impacts. Tar, unlike a brumby, unlike a horse, right, has very, very um, small fingerprint on the landscape. It's not a harsh-footed, hoofed animal. It's not causing massive erosion, massive degradation. And here's a couple of things that are, are key that people forget about in New Zealand specifically. So New Zealand didn't have any mammals. It had a very large flightless bird community, one of which was a, a thing called a moa. And a moa was like twice the size of an ostrich. A moa was a browser. It, it browsed vegetation. It grazed grass. So the alpine and the, um, and, the, and, the, and the sort of vegetation that are in New Zealand are adapted to browsing, are adapted to grazing. Uh, in these alpine areas, specifically for tar, tussock, tussock's a grass. Grass is meant to be eaten and it regenerates. So, and then you look at the density. I'll, the last thing I'll say is density. So they believe this probably, well, today, after the whole tarmageddon issue that's happened in the last two years, Doc is pretty hammered, hammered tar in specific areas. They think there's probably a, a, the tar population is around 18,000, 19,000. It's, a, it's, a, it's the best guess that I can come up with, best I, sort of population estimate that Doc can come up with. It's an incredibly enormous range that they live in. Let's just say they even, let's just even put it, push it to like 50,000. There's 50,000 tar on the landscape. The landscape that they live in is so big that the fingerprint of 50,000 tar is negligible. However, when you have 100 plus tar in a small valley, they have ecologically, are ecologically detrimental to that. And they need to be culled. They need to be managed. They need to be. But how do you balance management with value? That's what the Fjordland Wapiti Foundation is doing, specifically. So they have a Wapiti, which is a red stag elk hybrid that was a gift by Theodore Roosevelt in 1905. And they, and Doc wants to control it, control the deer population. They don't want to put 1080 on the landscape. Uh, it's a phenomenal landscape, Fjordland, and it's this magnificent animal that has value to people to go hunt only. Nobody is going in there to look at them mm-hmm. because it's just too harsh of a, of a place. But can you marry the two together? So specifically for tar, specifically for red deer, specifically for, they don't, they don't have to cull chamois, uh, for fallow, you have to reduce the numbers. So reduce the numbers by taking out nannies, taking out kids, kid goats. Okay, people don't, <laughs> don't hear me for what I'm saying. 
and leave the trophies, leave the bulls, because the bulls are where the money's at. And so you've got this beautiful balance where I think you can reduce numbers, you can you can hit sort of um, population tolerance levels that you're looking for, but also bring the value into the population that brings an economic asset to to that animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much my my opinion when it comes to any animal, mm-hmm. whether it's introduced or native, is that you have to manage them. If you are one of those that say, well, let Mother Nature take its course, okay, but Mother Nature, she's a cruel bitch, and she's violent, and she lives in a boom and bust cycle. And if you feel like what we do as hunters is unethical and is cruel, you just watch Mother Nature. Sure. Yeah. No, well, I think, I think to me it almost feels slightly meaningless to say let Mother Nature take its course because I think what that does, and I know you've talked about this in other, other podcast episodes, about the separation that we as people feel from, you know, I don't even like saying the natural world because that seems to reinforce this artificial boundary between people and other, other species. You know, we are as much a part of nature as anything else is. Um, and so you, you can't say our impacts on other species are somehow wrong or artificial and that things left to entirely their own devices are, are the way things should be. So no, I completely, completely agree that management is always necessary. I think what you say about the, about tar and, and mowers formerly existing there and there needing to be some kind of grazing is really interesting. Um, yeah, there's me, some great research that's shown like red deer grazing. Red deer grazing is almost comparable to mower grazing in terms of their height structure. So that's really fascinating. And I think for me, if the research shows that a certain density of red deer on a mountainside was actually re- restoring the ecological benefits. Or, that, or, certain, or certain level of browsing pressure. Y- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was actually doing something like what the mowers were doing and then that was having benefits for the environment that you know they hadn't seen in New Zealand for 500 years then I would be all for it um I think for me the key is just that it has to be led by the research and led by the evidence about what's what's going on yeah but um, then you've got to layer in things like like for tar all right they live in <laughs> the alpine there's 20 million sheep right. in the alpine yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. that are what <laughs> grazing grass Sure. Right, they're not grazing tussocks. The tussocks landscape has been converted <laughs> to grass. Is that worse or better than having tar <laughs> on the landscape? Right? Sure. Or, you know, it, it's yeah. It's you've just got to constantly like yeah. You've just constantly got to remember. And then think about all the woodland. You know, there's always the human fingerprint. Like, look at New Zealand today. Find the woodland fragments, the woodland pockets. Most of it's agriculture, most of it's farm, unless it's like really rugged country and they're left alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure. I, I think, I think that the, the trap that a lot of people seem to fall into when they're dealing with issues like this is, well, the sort of black and white dichotomy. They're Native species are right, and non-native species must be eradicated, or mm-hmm. killing animals is wrong under all circumstances, mm-hmm. no matter what the kind of consequences downstream of, of not intervening are. Mm-hmm. I think my, my point about, you know, whatever we do is as much a part of nature as, as anything else, arguably, is that you know, even if we, if, 
not choosing to actively manage is is the same thing as choosing to manage in terms of you know the the consequences the the outcomes of that are our own responsibility either way so we we just have to yeah take whatever decisions we think are in the best interests of people and and nature um so yeah i, I was just interested because yeah I, it it's quite I, I was yeah it's it's fascinating to me it was fascinating to me seeing you defend a sort of non-native species because i had always had in my head this idea that um you know, benefits to conservation might necessarily be tied up with protecting the species that are kind of yeah, mm-hmm. supposed to be there mm-hmm. um but well, I, again it, to me i defend it from i i come at it from a span standpoint of like what and i guess maybe simplistically if i can really boil it down like what would happen and i say this across the world what would happen if hunting got removed mm-hmm. So where we so we interviewed a guy called Snow Hewitson. He's the he was the chair of the Tar Foundation. We we're on this private sheep station that hunts. They charge people to hunt. What would happen if there were no more tar on that landscape? More than likely, sheep would go into these top areas. Hundred percent, because they'd have to make money somehow. It's not like it just, it's, the land doesn't just, it's, it's, not, it's not free supper, not free lunch. Something has to pay for these guys to lease this ground from the crown. <laughs> and that to me is like, and then, and then to me, then I say, okay, well then the next question is really a question that you, you know, you're battling with and you, you constantly asking yourself like, where's the conservation benefit of the action? And how do you make the action more conservation-minded versus, you know, pure for-profit kind of endeavor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, completely agree. Completely agree. I think, yeah, people, yeah, a lot of people are too stuck in, a, in an unnuanced way of viewing the conversation. And well, I, ben, today's yeah. world isn't, today's world hates nuance. Sure, sure, yeah. They no, want it like this, or they want it like this. There's no nuance. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting. My my impression a lot of the time of um, particularly anti. So we've just had this this bill in the UK about trophy trophy imports. Gosh, I and hope things, this freaking dies in the House of Lords. <laughs> I hope it dies. Sure. Well, I think you know, it seems to be. Well, maybe I'm not sure how controversial I think this will be to say with people that I know, but um, it seems to me a lot of the time that the opposition to the imports of things like trophy hunting, opposition to trophy hunting itself, you know, is often based on um, a sort of idealistic viewing of the situation without without really ever having gone to the places that they're talking about. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think people often are, yeah, they want to see they see they take the world as they would like like it to be, not as it is. Um, and I think that as a conserv- as someone who's conservation minded myself, I, as I said earlier, the outcomes are what I'm most interested in, um, not necessarily the the means of getting there. Even mm-hmm. if those means aren't necessarily what I would, I don't know, want to see in a in a perfect sort of dream world that I've invented in my own in my own head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben Chapel, what's next for Ben Chapel? Well, how far are you in your uh, your PhD? I've got just over a year left at the moment. So we hope. 
We hope, yeah, yeah. Always, <laughs> yeah. There's always a chance it could just be dragged on and on and on. But I'm hoping I'll, hoping I'll get my act together and uh, and manage to manage to get it finished. Um, so probably next next July is when I'm hoping to finish all things all things being equal. And then after that, I'm not quite sure actually. It's a question that people keep asking me. Um, I I I love doing kind of communication type stuff. So it's been a real privilege to have been. Um, invited on this today. I've really enjoyed this. So whatever I do next, I'd like it to, to involve um, to the public communication about the things I care about, conservation and science and, and wildlife and everything to do with that. Um, but besides that, I'm not quite sure. So there are lots of different options, but I'll, yeah, oh, what, keep watch the, this keep, space. Keep it all open, man. You never <laughs> know what's going to, you never know what's going to come around the next corner. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, dude, I appreciate you jumping on. Um, I knew it was going to be a, a fascinating conversation. And, um, you know, we'll give another plug at the end here for Zarek to <laughs> jump on our podcast. And, and, and come on, Zarek. Zarek, you've got to come on. You really, really do. You've got so many interesting things to say. It would be a waste not to come on. Yeah. And look, you're not gonna, you don't have to listen to your own voice, number <laughs> one. Uh, you've got plenty of interesting things to say. What else did he tell me? Here we go. Um, he's introverted. And it's like, well, you, you have conversations with other people. Do you have any, like, it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then he, he talks about imposter syndrome. I'm nah. like, come on, man. We oh, all if, face imposter syndrome if, all, every day. If I can come on, then yeah, Zarek's <laughs> got no excuse. Some of us like the sound of his voice. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, dude. Look, man, thank you so much. Um, and let us know if we can do anything for you anytime. Listen, I thoroughly enjoyed this. So if, if you come across a topic that you're like, oh, I have a strong opinion about this and I, I want to have a strong conversation about it, reach out. No, well, thanks, man. We'll I podcast just to, again. Yeah, that'd be great. So I've, I've loved listening to a lot of your episodes. It's something that I need to broaden my perspectives on. And I'm really, really enjoyed the opportunity to, to do it with you today. So thanks. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.